So I, I grew up uh, on a farm about nine miles outside of the town of McMinnville. And um, we got to know that journey from the farm to McMinnville pretty well. Every day. First it was on a bus, and then later my parents had this VW bus. And uh, it wasn't cool back then, but my friends liked it. Just wasn't. Have you ever driven a VW bus? Anyway. Anyway, we'd pass by, I digress, we'd pass by this um, uh, tourist attraction, if you want to use those terms, I would use them loosely, but there was a tourist attraction on the way into McMinnville, and it essentially is a rock, a big rock. Apparently they call it the erratic rock. I don't know if they named it at that point when I was a kid, but... There was this rock, you'd take this little trail, and uh, it was all, it's all marked now. It's just, back then it wasn't really that marked. And you can go and see a 90-ton Canadian rock. It's very, I know right now you're making plans to see it right now. I can see you getting out your phone, trying to find it. It's, it's really there. Apparently, it's the only rock of its type in the United States. Apparently it came down from Canada, and I don't know all the, the details, probably on a glacier somehow. But it ended up up there, and, and uh, it's not that exciting. I know with the way I was describing it, you thought it was going to be exciting. But that rock and other things are the reasons, actually, why the Willamette Valley is so amazing. It can grow so many things. Um, we're going to talk about some of those things that grow. Uh, here in the parables that Jesus is going to uh, tell us today, what's the biggest rock you've seen? I mean, maybe some of you've seen the erratic rock. I don't know. Rock of Gibraltar. That's a rock. Okay. Yeah. All right. Do you, does anybody know what the biggest rock in the world is and where it's at? It's in Australia. This is true. You look it up. Don't look it up right now, though. It's in Australia. It's called Mount Augustus. So look it up later. It really doesn't look like a rock to me because when they get that big, it just looks like a, like a hill or something or like a plateau. Uh, we are going to be talking about rocks. You know, when I was in Bible college, we used to do this goofy thing where we try to do brain teasers. This is how we killed time in Bible college. I know you think maybe all this good theological education, but there was some downtime. And we would try to do things like, hey, can God create a rock so big that even he can't move it. These are the things that would keep us up at night. Uh, these young theologians starting out, this is what we talked about. Can God create a What a goofy, silly thing. Uh, but I mean, on, a, on a serious note, rocks are important. We know that. We build stuff. You, know. you pour concrete. You can't just pour it on the ground. You have to put rock. I mean, We've got to use it. We know it's important for buildings and structures and stuff staying staying uh, straight, uh, they're in, under our houses, but there are other things that rocks represent, and that's going to be some of getting into the parable, at least the first parable today, that rock can also mean truth, rock can mean something that you base your life on that's a surefire bet, and we're going to be talking about that today. If you have a Bible or a device, find Matthew chapter 21, 
We're going to end up, uh, end Matthew 21 a little bit with the first parable. Then we'll dip into Matthew chapter 22 for the second parable. These parables are related. They're very related, so I want you to listen carefully as we read it here in a moment. But I'm Pastor Ben. I'm so glad you've joined us today, whether that be in person or online. We, uh, we, we meet like this on Sundays. Uh, we, we say often that we're one big dysfunctional family of faith. There's Christ followers all over the globe doing what we're doing on a Sunday morning. And why is it on a Sunday morning? Because it was on a Sunday morning that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and changed human history forever. That's why we're in this room, right? That's why we lift up the name. That's why we sing. That's why we take communion here in a little bit. That's why we read the Word. Because the words of Jesus are timeless and awesome. So let's pause for a word of prayer and then get into the text today. And I'm just going to call this message Two Powerful Parables. There's no better, better way to, to say it. So let's pray. God, we're thankful that you're in charge and we're not. You are King of kings and Lord of lords. And, and we do want to pray that your will be done, your kingdom come on earth as in heaven. Lord, help us to be people uh, of your kingdom today. As we read and hear from your son Jesus, may we be equipped to do your work, to be your hands and feet in our world, in our community, in our families. And may you get all the glory as we lean into your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you can stand with me, would you stand as we read the word of God? I know this seems formal, but this stuff's really important. Matthew 21, starting with verse 33. Hopefully you found it by now. And let's just lean in to the scriptures. No... I love technology, but sometimes it's annoying. I don't want to fill in a survey about my Bible app, okay? This is Sunday. Don't you know we're gathered here? Okay. Verse 33, the parable of the tenants, you might say in your Bible. Here, here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, we're about in that season right now, by the way. When that drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took the servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And again, again he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. And finally, he sent his son to them, saying, well, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is their heir. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said, this is the Jewish leadership at this point, they said, well, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let, them out, of the and, and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taking, taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a 
parable or gave a, a wedding feast for his son and, and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. And again, he sent other servants. You, you see the similarities here? He sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But the, when the king came in and to look at the guests, he saw that there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without, the, without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so we have two parables here. And maybe as I was reading them, you might have noticed some similarities. You have kind of some servants, you have a king or, you know, the head of the banquet who's kind of in charge. There's some similarities in both of these, and we found that already in, in Matthew's gospel. Look, when you're opening the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these stories just aren't randomly put in there. And Matthew is no different. He is putting these in order on purpose. They are connected. So we have these two stories, and I would like to say these are sort of spicy do you feel that way? We had a, a little boy living with us for a while, and he couldn't say that word very well, so he just said Pisces. So I thought about putting that as a title, two Pisces parables, but anyway, I think it works, but these are spicy stories. There's, there's things going on here. There's a who's who of characters. There's like judgment. There's, there's a guy that's not wearing the right men's warehouse suit. There's some stuff in these, and they're, they're connected. Matthew's not, not doing this uh, accidentally. So in the first parable, we got the vineyard. We got this guy. And by the way, that takes a while. If you know vineyards, you don't just plant the stuff and harvest right away. It's a three- to five-year process to get those berries happening. It takes a bit. This guy built this whole vineyard, basically, and got the processing area for the grapes, so who is, who is the master, if you will? Who is the landowner? Who, who'd, who'd you th- who do you think would, would be that person? Yeah, yeah I, I think that's God. You know? Just like in the wedding feast, you have the king throwing a wedding for his son. You see what's happening? It should ring bells, right? This should be like, oh, this seems kind of interesting. So you have this king. I, I think, yeah, the, the landowner, he's, he, he's God. And then you have this vineyard. And in the Hebrew Scriptures, we call it the Old Testament, but oftentimes God's people, the people of Israel, there's a metaphor used for them called the vineyard. They're like a vineyard. And that goes all the way back to the promise that God gave to Abraham before they ever became a people, that they would be a blessing to the world. They would be fruitful for the world. So here we have another bit of the mystery. We have the landowner who's yeah, represented, that's God, I would say. And then, then you have the the, the the, the, the vineyard, that's the people. 
And then you have these tenants. Who do you think the tenants are in this parable? Remember, those are the folks that were kind of managing the vineyard, managing the people, and maybe mismanaging some things, refusing orders from the owner. Who do you think these folks might be? Yeah, you got the religious leaders. So that's kind of spicy. And I'm guessing they're around him right now. He might even be staring him down, you know. And those tenants looking at him. And look at what they did to the communicators, right? Communicators is the wrong word. But the, the, the servants that, you know, the, the vineyard manager, he was sending servants, right? Who might those people be? We're doing a who's who. Who would they be? Prophets? Yeah, the prophets. And, and, and how did they treat those good old prophets? Beaten. Stoned. And, and when we get to the wedding thing, they were mistreated. So much so that the, the king's sending an army. So they weren't just like made fun of. They were killed. And so you see that the, the, the interaction between both of these parables. Again, this is intentional. But you have these servants that are beaten up. The tenants are like, you know what, let's beat them up. And then, who's the son? Now, we know looking back, I mean, of course Jesus is the son, right? We know him as God's son. We know that right away now. But for a Jewish audience, especially a Jewish leadership audience, these are neon signs of messianic stuff. You got vineyard, you, and then you got the king, and, the, and then you got this son. These are messianic terms. And it gets even more clear when you get into a wedding feast, because for the Jewish leadership, they knew that wedding feast, that's Messiah talk. That's mess, messianic age. Because when the Messiah comes, party time. The Jewish leadership kind of knows exactly what Jesus... They don't right away get it. You notice in the parable, they don't right away... Because he asked them a question. Well, what, what is the, you know, the landowner, what is, what is the vineyard owner going to do with those wicked tenants who, who beat my servants up and then killed my son? What, what, what is he going to do? And what do they say? What, what, those miserable wretches, we're going to... He's going to beat them up, you know? And then within a few moments, they realize... Oh, he's talking about us. They don't like that because they were those people who were supposed to be helping the nation of Israel produce fruit. They were supposed to be the ones leading the charge, being prepared for the Messiah, but they're rejecting the king and they're rejecting the son. Now we know what's going to happen a few days later. They literally are going to reject the son and he will be killed. Wow, there's some... Jesus isn't pulling punches anymore. We've said that already here as we get into his last week. But he is not sugarcoating anything. He's looking directly into their eyes and saying, you had a chance. We talk about Palm Sunday, I think. We, we like to celebrate it, and that's good. We talked about, what, a couple weeks ago? And we talk about the palm fronds, and depending on your church tradition, you might have the priest doing this with the water. and it's, It feels like a, a fun event. Jesus wasn't smiling on that donkey, I don't think. I think he was weeping. Because he's coming into the city that should have represented the light to the world. And it's so dark. And they weren't producing fruit. And the people weren't being a blessing to all nations. They'd gotten corrupted. Especially the, the Jewish leadership had gotten so corrupted. They got too close to Rome, too close to comfort. 
That still happens, right? But he's weeping. In fact, the scriptures tell us, he, he, they use, they, they, he, he's looking at the city, and the scriptures say that he, he weeps for Jerusalem. And he, he would have loved to have gathered them under his wings like a mama bird, but they would have nothing of it. And he's looking with a heavy heart and telling these two parables and looking directly into the eyes of those leaders. Oh, that we wouldn't be like that. That we would hear from the king and just ignore, dismount, just meh, don't need to hear it. They were so close. As we get into that wedding parable, there was a guy there who was so close, but he refused something. We'll get into that. So, okay, fun fact. Switching gears for a second. I, I've always been bothered by the son entering this first parable. I've always been confused by it because I'm like, why would they think that when the owner sends his son, a relative, and they kill him, get him out of the picture, why would then legally they would have any claim to the vineyard, right? Doesn't that your mind kind of go there? Like, what are you thinking? You know, don't, don't people know who's on record of, you know, they, they own this deed? How, how, is he, how are you going to get it? But there was a sense in ancient culture where uh, if you were working property and the owners were away for a long time, it's almost like our phrase, possession is nine-tenths of the law. Have you ever heard that phrase? That's kind of what's going on here. They've been here for a while. They don't know. Maybe the king's dead. And so... If there's no legal right to this thing and the, there, there's no family here, if we take care of the last heir, well then, possession is nine-tenths of the law. That's kind of what's going on here. Again, that part has always kind of made me scratch my head. But they're thinking they're going to get him. They're going to get this property. And the prophets, those servants, are beaten and they're stoned and they're killed. Can you think of any Hebrew prophets that were treated like that by Israel? I can think of a few. Jeremiah. Have you ever read Jeremiah? That's not a happy book. The stuff he was called to do. He, prophets spoke truth to power often. And they would speak to the people, saying, hey, get back on track. That was a big part of their job. People think prophets, and they're thinking, oh, they're always telling the future. But most of what they're doing is saying, hey, God said this. How about we do that? There was uh, probably a prophet that, were, that, that, that they were thinking about right here. A prophet who was mistreated by a king who was supposed to be Jewish. Eh. Herod. And he killed a prophet with the camel hair garment eating bugs. You remember that guy? He was a prophet. He was the prophet like Elijah who was to come. So probably fresh on, everybody who's hearing that would have said, oh yeah, that was John the Baptist. He's talking, about, he's talking about these Jewish leaders. He's talking about these leaders of Israel, including the king, who had no real care about God anymore. This is a system. This is an institution. This is what's going on here. They killed and stoned and mistreated is what the second parable says. And funny word before we get to the second parable that when the religious leaders figured out that the tenants in the story were them, the word there is indignant. And 
we kind of learned already a couple weeks ago that when N.T. Wright, who's a biblical scholar, when he translates that word, he says they were cross. That's so English. They were cross. You know, I don't think it has the same oomph as indignant, but they were indignant. They were ready to get this loudmouth rabbi off of the radar. But they couldn't hurt him at that point. Why? He was in a public place. Why couldn't they hurt him in that moment? Why? People thought he was pretty cool. He was challenging their authority. I can imagine some of the people there were just kind of doing this thing. Have you ever watched people in an argument? You just can't look away. So you're looking at them. Well, what are you going to say? I feel like they're doing a bit of that through these parables. They're like, oh, he, said, he just said, they're the tenants. You know, you can hear the chatter in the background. Ugh. Why does he tell this parable? Israel was supposed to be a blessing to the world, and these leaders were really preventing a lot of that from happening, misleading the people. Jesus will even call them blind guides who lead the blind. If you're both, everybody's blind, nobody's getting anywhere. I totally paraphrase that, but they weren't leading the people properly, and, and, and Jesus is like, this is it. You had your chance. Jesus is probably looking toward what would happen very shortly by a Roman general and it's going to end the temple and much of what we think of ancient Israel. A Roman general is just going to be tired of them. Tired of this nuisance called the Jewish people. Always causing problems, all their little divisions, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Essenes. They're done with them. Too much chaos. And within a generation, this judgment that Jesus is lamenting over is going to happen. And they just wouldn't see it. The danger is coming down the tracks. And they're just closing their eyes. And it, I think it breaks Jesus' heart. I think it still breaks Jesus' heart when he warns us about stuff. And we just close our eyes and keep moving forward. When, when we know there's danger ahead, we are so stubborn. Lord, have mercy on us in this room. All right, let's talk about the second parable. Oh, by the way, the whole stone intro of this little crazy message, Jesus will say he's the cornerstone. You wondered, how did that tie in? Jesus will say, and he quotes Psalm 118, that everything that God is doing is based right here. And he's telling those religious leaders, everything, all of God's plan hinges on this cornerstone. He is the rock. His teaching, his word, his person, this is the cornerstone, and they totally miss it. Psalm 118, verse 20 to 24 says this, and the stone, this is way before Jesus stepped on the scene. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The whole house has to be rearranged because if you swap out a cornerstone, the whole thing's got to come down to be rebuilt. Everything is rebuilt on Jesus. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it because the cornerstone is here. The Jewish leaders said, no, we will not be glad in it. And they're marching toward getting him off the radar. All right, second parable. Who, who, who's, who's who in this one? Similar, right? You have the king who wants to throw a wedding feast for his son. Okay, Both of those kind of characters were in the first parable. You have the king or the master. He's God, right? That would be represented by God. And then you have uh, the folks invited to the party, 
Right? We have those characters. We have the son. Right? That's the heir. Uh, and, you know, again, all these people are invited. That's the nation of Israel. Uh, they're, they're invited in. And then uh, there's these servants or, or communicators, right, that the king sends out with these invitations. And what happens, kind of like the servant sent by the vineyard guy, here in this one, what do they do to those, you know, communicators, inviters? What, what do the people do to them? They mistreat them, they beat them, they, they kill. But this wedding banquet thrown by the king, this is messianic talk. And the invitation goes out to Israel and the, and the, and the leaders of Israel. But they ignore, they downplay, they flat out reject the invitation. I mean, this time it isn't to working in the vineyard. This time it's a celebration. And this was probably, I think, ancient Near East wedding. They weren't just like three hours on a Saturday. I think they were like a week-long thing. You're invited to the party. I like how we even have some of the menu listed in this invitation. It's like the Arby's commercial. We got the meats. We got what? Is oxen in there? Oh, that sounds pretty good to me. Fatted calf, I love me some veal. We've got the menu, even. Come. It's probably the best of wine, the whole thing. And they just re refuse, ignore. i got other things more important. They're rejecting the king's rule and invitation. Hey, yay, yay, we still do it today. The invitation's set. The, the wedding feast we've been invited to. The big party we've been invited to. And how many of us ignore it? flat out reject it, or just can't be bothered by the invitation. There's so much here. We never have enough time to delve into all of this. I feel like the teachings of Jesus are kind of things like if you grab a book. I know books, young people, are these things that have pages in them. Just kidding. But books, you know how if you just want to get a synopsis of what's going on, you might read the cover or something. I think the teachings of Jesus have a little bit of that going on, where you, you can get a gist of the parable by just kind of surface listening, okay, you know, be good to my neighbor. That's kind of that service level, but the teaching of Jesus tends to have some depth to it. The more you lean in, and I feel like we never have enough time to get through all those layers of meaning, but we have a rejection of the king and his big party. Everybody's invited. Did you notice that they're not even distinguishing anymore about who gets the invite? By the end of that, the, the, the king throwing the weddings, like bring everybody in. Even says the good and the bad. When you hear that phrase, read Gentiles. Okay, well that would have been a buzzword for any of the Jewish leadership. No, you ain't letting them people in. That would have been the attitude. Sometimes it got violent. So let everybody in. Go to the street. You don't, no distinguishing of who's good and bad. Bring them all in. Does that sound like the kingdom talk? May not have been the one they expected though. That everybody gets to be invited to the banquet? Maybe they forgot. When God spoke to Abraham, he said, you're going to have so many children. You're going you're to populate the globe, and you're going to be a blessing worldwide. Maybe they forgot that. Oh, there's so much richness to this. Uh, and, and he wanted them to be in the party. They wouldn't have it. He wanted to gather them like a hen gathers chicks, but he wouldn't do it. They would not do it. They refused to see. Wow. 
And here's, here's what, what bothers me about the story sometimes. And maybe, maybe you've read it and it bothers you too. Okay, so what about this guy that shows up and he doesn't have the right robe on? Whatever. I don't know what they've dressed like in the first, like, first century. I wasn't there, okay? Uh, I don't know what they dressed like. But why? Does this part bother you? Sometimes I think when we read Scripture, we run into moments like this where we're kind of jostled a little bit. Like, this seems kind of... Weird. I mean, because, right, the invitation, what, what was the invitation for? Did he mention the clothing? Like, well, only invite those who have the men's warehouse suit on. This guy didn't have it. There's some, so my point is there's some layers here that we may not totally get from the surface. This seems like a counterintuitive deal, where, first of all, the invite goes everywhere, and they're not discerning, but then when the guy shows up and he's in the wrong outfit, he's he's kind of questioned there by the king. In fact, thrown out. So there's some stuff going on here that may, may be confusing to us. Seems kind of harsh. You know, like, well, round that guy up, hog time and throw him out, you know, because he's not wearing the right, you know, sequined suit. I don't know. Whatever they were wearing. Does that part bother you at all? Because that does me. I had to do some research on this because I'm like, I'm not sure how to, how to navigate this. And Apparently, if you were in the first century and you were going to throw a party for a week, think about the last time you invited everybody over for like a big dinner or something at your house. It's not cheap anymore. You get a couple of turkey. How much are we talking? How much do we spend on Thanksgiving anymore? And that's what? Half a day, maybe, if you can stand your relatives that long? This was a whole week of supplies and food. So generally, if you're throwing something like that, you, you have some means. Right, you can afford that. Maybe you've been saving for a while, but that's expensive. And there's, a, there's some evidence in ancient Near East weddings when people who had means would throw a wedding feast, they wanted you to feel like you could participate just like everybody else. But maybe you didn't have the money. Hold on. Maybe you're driving up to the wedding venue and all you see are Tesla Model S's. And you're driving up in an 80s Corolla with the door fallen off. But when you got in that wedding feast, see, there was this thing where you would get handed a garment. And there's so much rich, richness to this idea that I can't even go into. This idea that the, hold on to this, the king is going to give you the proper garment. And you're going to wear that. The king is going to clothe you. I, I don't have time. There's so much I could do right there. But you're given a garment so that you could participate and feel with dignity like, you, you're, you're part of this, right? So once again, why did this guy not... He's walking around with the popcorn shrimp in his hand, maybe a little cocktail, and he's not wearing the garment. There's a good chance, and I, I, I can't totally prove this, but it, according to the commentators, there's a good chance this guy was handed the garment, tossed it aside, and went for the popcorn shrimp. So... There's layers in that one, too, because you rejected what the king was going to give you. And what did the, the, the scriptures say? Matthew records that he was speechless when the king asked him. Doesn't even make an excuse. Once again, he's probably looking right at the relig religious leaders and thinking, you are so close. But you're in that wedding, but you refuse, still refuse me. You still refuse what I'm trying to give you. You toss it aside. He's looking at those leaders and saying, you were so close. You were in the banquet. But you didn't wear my clothes. You didn't wear my garment. 
You rejected me. Once again, it's a rejection of the king. Oh, my goodness. How much do we reject what God wants to do? And we know disaster's ahead. Most of that's disaster we create. We think we, we can figure this thing out. We can't. So rejection, ignoring what the king is doing, these parables fit together. They fit so well together. These spicy stories are there for a purpose and a warning for us. No, we're not Israelites, but he's warning us as his followers. We don't want to reject what the king is asking us to do. It's his kingdom, and we're supposed to produce fruit still. We're supposed to be people that bless the world, and how many times do we do that? The community around us, our church family, our families, how much are we blessing them with what God has blessed us? We are supposed to be forgiven people who forgive others. And we're supposed to be blessed people who bless others. Israel and the leadership failed to do that. And there's a warning here for us. Produce fruit. And you already know what some of it is. And I'm going to do it because you're going to have this memorized. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. <gasps> Nine. Are you producing those fruits? Because Jesus would look at you and say, are you producing some fruit? Now, we only do that connected to him as the vine. He's the one that does the work, but we've got to say yes to the invitation. He's inviting us to be blessers to the world, to be fruitful and to go to the feast. He wants us to go to the feast. I don't want to reject the feast. Both here and not yet. We have, we have new heavens and new earth someday. He's, he's going to call us. We pray. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as in heaven. We are called to be fruitful and to go to the feast. If you've never said yes to the invitation, you could do that today. Please do that today. Because I want to eat some lamb right next to you. I want to eat some oxen. Maybe even some veal. Because that was on the menu. I want some of that. I hope you do too. Let's be fruitful and go to that feast. Let's pray. Father, you're so good and powerful. Mighty. And we submit to you as king. And we don't reject your invitation. We say yes. And we go. And we want to be a people who are a blessing to other people. Lord, empower us to be fruitful. And when they see those fruitful good works, people will, around us will can't help but want to be part of it. And may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.